Hi and welcome to the We Are Zion Sermon Podcast. We are a local church based here in Chennai, India. We are so glad you are with us and hope that this will encourage, inspire and instill fresh faith in you. We have Pastor Jerry Nicholas begin a new series for us called Going Deeper, which is an in-depth study on the book of Ephesians. We pray that as you listen to the word, it will transform and revitalize your walk with God. Let's listen in. Hello, everybody. Once again, I'm so pleased and excited to be joining you. Um, we are going to be starting a series on Ephesians, and I have the privilege of uh, sharing what I have learned as I've explored the first chapter of Ephesians. Um, before we get into it, uh, I would like to start with a word of prayer, and then we can begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for giving us this chance to, to gather you, Lord. Father, as always, uh, and as, as always, we will be, Lord. We thank you for giving us this privilege to come together in your name, in the name of your Son. And uh, thank you that your Holy Spirit is present with us, Lord, that we can gather as uh, people who are been set apart for you, as we will read, uh, who, are, who gather as people who are in Christ. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for the safety in which we gather here in Chennai, Lord. We are so grateful to you. We are so just filled with gratitude as we think about that. And now, Lord, as uh, I prepare to speak and share uh, from your scripture, I ask that you would uh, calm my nerves, that you would give me the words to speak, that you would settle my mind, you settle my words, you settle calm my spirit, and that uh, you would be the one that uh, is orchestrating this time, and that you would give me the words to speak. And that you would help me convey the excitement that I have felt reading your scripture this uh, past couple of weeks. Lord. Once again, thank you for this time, Lord. We bless you and we thank you again for giving us this chance to meet. Uh, we love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I think we will get right in. Uh, as I just mentioned, I get the privilege of uh, sharing with you uh, what I have learned as I have been uh, spending time reading Ephesians chapter 1 and researching about it and seeing what Scripture has to say for us or what Paul had to say to the believers in Ephesus and by that say to us as well. Uh, so as I'm doing the first chapter, I'm also going to share some background information about uh, this uh, epistle to the Ephesians or this letter that Paul wrote to all the believers in Ephesus. Um, as when we read 1 and 2, you'll see that it says Paul is the one that's writing it, and the recipients are the believers in Ephesus. Uh, so Paul is writing this letter, um, and the people who are receiving this letter are the believers in this city called Ephesus that uh, is in Asia Minor, or Ephesus was in Asia Minor. Um, so Paul probably wrote this letter around 62 AD, um, this is called a prison epistle because he was imprisoned at this time. Um, at the particular time he wrote Ephesians, his imprisonment probably didn't look like a traditional imprisonment that Paul probably that Paul has undergone being in shackles in prison. Uh, at the time he wrote this, his imprisonment was probably more likely a very strict house arrest. He is likely to have been. Uh, 
chained to a Roman guard. His movements are probably restricted. Uh, however, he was allowed to have visitors, and that's how he was able to have a courier take this letter that he wrote to to the church in Ephesus. Um, he he likely wrote the letter to Colossians and also Philemon around the same time. So he was able to have a courier come to his home or wherever he was staying and take these letters and have them delivered to the church, respective churches or people. So that was Paul's situation. Uh, the so And then so what was the situation like for the believers in Ephesus? Uh, what were likely reasons uh, Paul was writing this letter? Ephesians is a bit different than most of Paul's letters. Uh, Paul's letters many times deal with specific issues to the churches he's writing with or to the congregations he's writing with, whether they're pastoral issues or theological issues. He There are specific reasons for writing. Ephesians, it's more of a general letter. Paul doesn't seem to state a specific reason for writing this letter. However, there are reasons for writing. And... Uh, as we read the letter, as we go through Ephesians, some of those might become apparent. I will share some of those that I uh, found were likely reasons as I was researching. So uh, Ephesus uh, was an important city. Um, the religious climate of Ephesus and the religious climate that the people lived in was uh, very unique. It was uh, a city that really um, celebrated Magic. It was a hotspot for magic, for sorcery, uh, for idolatry. And uh, it was also deeply engrossed in uh, something new that I learned. It's called the imperial cult. So the imperial cult is a, it's a fancy term for anyone who worshipped the emperor as God. So in Rome, the emperor um, so who was worshipped as a deity. Um, so... This um, imperial cult was prominent uh, throughout Rome. It was very prominent in Ephesus. Um, it was ingrained in, in, in all forms of society. It just wasn't like a religion for Roman officials or government officials or soldiers. It was, for, it was something that was practiced from, uh, through all the strata of society. And it, it was something that was uh, deeply a part of them, this uh, imperial cult and uh, oh, when i say imperial cult and that they worshipped uh, the emperor it was from what i can gather it was almost it was a very true form of worship in the sense that they truly believed that this person was a deity not just an important person or someone they held in reverence it was someone they looked at as a god um, so the, one of the, I guess, one of the things that, uh, the imperial cult wanted to, um, put out or wanted to, I guess, uh, communicate was that the reign or the rule of uh, the emperor and his family is eternal. So these are properties that we would only give to a god eternal and this has been given to a human here um so so keep that in mind as we go through ephesus there's this imperial cult it's a hot spot for magic for sorcery and uh, to give you a sense of how deep uh people were into this imperial cult or how high they held this emperor so 
Uh, Augustus uh, is Augustus Caesar, Augustus, the Roman emperor, is one of the main deities in this imperial cult. Um, he is known as one of the uh, greatest leaders in the world. He's definitely noted, I think, as one of the greatest Roman leaders. He is the one credited with bringing peace to Rome and unifying it. Um, if you've heard of the word Pax Romana or Peace of Rome, he is the one credited with the, that peace. So there are historical records of Ephesus where we see this deification of uh, Augustus and other emperors. There would be statues and images all over Ephesus um, dedicated to them, or so this they were worshipped as a deity. And I found something very interesting that really brought this around to me. Uh, so there's a record of a Roman official and how he portrayed Augustus. So this particular Roman official, this was his view of Augustus. Okay, So he viewed Augustus as a god, as a god who ended a period of deterioration and suffering for the world and restored all things to usefulness. Uh, He was spoken of as a savior, a god whose birth was the beginning of good tidings to the world. So this Roman official is trying to convey about Augustus that... uh, he was the one that has brought good tidings to the world through his birth, that his birth changed the world somehow and brought good tidings to it, and that he uh, ended a period of deterioration and suffering in the world and restored things to usefulness. Um, these are things we would say about Jesus, that his birth changed everything, that when he was born, that we have hope. These are things we'd say about Jesus, where he is restored, that, where God is restoring all things to himself and that he will ultimately end suffering. So you see that parallel. So you see how highly they held these. They were truly gods to them because uh, they, almost in a sense, they became gods because they thought they influenced the world around them so much that they were able to bring peace. So therefore, people made them gods. So just to give you a sense of the depth that these people believed that these were gods or deities, these mere humans were gods and deities. So... This imperial cult, like I said, it penetrated every form of society. So uh, everybody worshipped the emperor. So imagine if you, in this climate, you chose not to do that and worship somebody else. So this was the climate that the Christians in Ephesus were uh, a part of. So they were coming out of this into being believers in Christ. So um Keep this in the back of your mind as we go through Ephesians 6. So when uh, we think of moments like uh, we say Jesus is King or Jesus is Lord, what are they really, what does it really mean to them in the midst of this climate that they're in? Because they're coming from this place where Caesar or the emperor is Lord and the emperor is King and they're having to do a 180 and call the true King a King. But think of the ramifications of such a confession in this place where the true king, according to the imperial cult, is the emperor or a former emperor. So something interesting to keep in mind. So last thing, last interesting point that uh, I was fascinated by was, so they held him in such high esteem that he was really a god, that the same Roman official uh, wanted to realign the entire calendar and make the birthday of Augustus as day one in the calendar. So he was 
God. So they figured, why not just set the calendar to him? So I don't think, I'm not sure if it actually happened, but it was legislation he was proposing. So, but just to give you an insight as to the, excuse me, the religious climate that uh, the Christians in Ephesus were, uh, while they were Christians, before they became Christians. So something to keep in mind. So we will get into the text right now. So we will go in bits and pieces at a time. And as I read scripture, we will try and see what uh, is being communicated to us. So I'm going to start reading with uh, verse 1 and 2, and then see what that has to say, and then keep moving forward till the end of the chapter. So this is uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it is a greeting. So, Paul is acknowledging that he's the one writing the letter, that it is from Paul. It is to the God's holy people in Ephesus and uh, He's also saying a greeting, uh, as in uh, grace and peace to you. Uh, so this, uh, most ancient letters around this time always have a greeting at the beginning. Most secular letters had a formal greeting of uh, many health to you or good health to you. But here, Paul changes that to grace and peace and includes God in that greeting because that is important to us. And it's important to Paul. And Paul an apostle, so he is, uh, in a sense, um, appealing to his authority as an apostle, as an apostle, as, as a person who has either seen the living Lord or someone who is sent out to do uh, work. Uh, whatever way you look at what an apostle is, he's using that title uh, to appeal to that authority that he might have as he's writing this pastoral letter to the church in Ephesus so, so that uh, they would... Uh, recognize his authority and read what he has to say or heed to what he has to say. And uh, so it says to God's holy people in Ephesus. Um, so even this to God's holy people, it is uh, literally the ones uh, to the people set apart in Ephesus. So um, this idea again, that we are God's people holy as in we are set apart for him. And in this particular verses one and two, this uh, idea of holiness is not this idea that we become holy by doing holy things or like because we are holy we are doing things it is this idea that we are made holy because god has separated us for himself so it is a designation that you are holy it is not uh, you've done things to make yourself holy it is a designation that god has given you because he has set you apart the first chunk is 3 to 14 but we will do this in bits and pieces so this is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. This entire section from 3 to 14 is what uh, we call a doxology. It is like a hymn of praise. It is entire thing is praising God for what he has done. 
uh, what he has done for his people, what he has done in Christ and through Christ. So it is a hymn of praise. So after the greeting, Paul immediately gets into this uh, worship or praise of God. So it, as we read through this, it would give us an idea on how we could approach our praise and our worship of God. So he starts out, Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. So this heavenly realms with spiritual blessing was a little difficult to, there, it just seemed like there were so many different ways of maybe interpreting it or not. So it was difficult to come to a solid conclusion of what it exactly meant. But what we can conclude for sure is that the reason, I mean, heavily realms is mentioned because it is almost like uh, a sense of identity for us. We are not just earthly anymore. Uh, we are heavenly as well. We, so it's something, so it, it's almost in terms of our identity that this, this heavenly realm is mentioned. So it, identity is just not earthly, but it's heavenly. And same with this spiritual blessing. It is just no merely earthly blessing that you can give someone, but it's a heavenly blessing. And if your question is, so what are these spiritual blessings he's talking about? Thankfully, Paul knew that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because uh, he goes on to tell us what are these blessings that, that we have been blessed with. Now, every spiritual blessing in Christ that we've been blessed with. Uh, so he goes on to expound on that. So first of these blessings uh, is that uh, he has chosen us. He has chosen us to be his people. So if you, as you read this, like I'm going to, it says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world uh, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And love. he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So, in these words, chosen before the foundation of the world. He predestined us. He thought about us before we ever had our first thought. He thought about us before the foundations of uh, this, co this universe, this cosmos. He has always been thinking of us. Um, so we, we are not this kind of afterthought. He has always had us on his mind. He has chosen us from the very beginning. He has predestined us. So like th there is this uh, trying to convey this truth that we have always been important to God from the very beginning. He has always thought about you. He has always thought about me. He's always thought about us, uh, the church. And from the very beginning, it, it is, he has chosen us from the very beginning. It, it is such a profound, humbling thing to think that God has had me on his mind from the very, very beginning. So, and the idea that he has had us on his mind to make us part of his family, right? Because it says for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and good and will so he has chosen us he has predestined us he has done these things so that we can be a part of his family he is doing all of these things so we can be a part of his family uh, we haven't done anything here it doesn't talk about what we have done to be a part of his family only what god has done he has chosen us he has predestined us he has um, called us to be holy and blameless. so and uh, he has predestined us for adoption to sonship. He has done all these things in accordance with his pleasure and will. So 
God is driving this. He is driving this, um, bringing us to be a part of his family. This, he's driving all of this. We are not someone who is, uh, we have not done anything to be part of God's family. Yes, we have chosen to when we were given the option, but everything has been from the side of God and moving us towards being a part of his family. So he is the orchestrator of all of these things. So, And he has been orchestrating this from the very beginning. And it really talks about, uh, because it says to the praise of his glorious grace. This is that grace. Um, him driving everything. Him being the author of choosing us and bringing us to be his people, bringing us in to be his children. This is all his grace because we have not done anything to deserve it or we have not done anything to be a part of his family. It is him who is bringing us in to be a part of his family. So, and then, uh, so we can now, so that idea that he has chosen us from the very beginning is a very important one in uh, uh, verses three to six. Now, if we move on to verses seven to eight, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So this Next part, so it talks about how we have redemption through his blood and we have forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So uh, this phrase, redemption through his blood, um, part of the audience, audience that uh, Paul is writing to here is Jewish. So they would have remembered the time of God's people in uh, Egypt where during uh, the first Passover, God, um, by the blood of the lamp on the doorpost, spared them. And uh, so this uh, kind of uh, harkens back to that, this phrase. And it shows that we have redemption, and our, and our redemption has been bought with the price. The price was blood, the blood of uh, God the Son. So in this redemption also means we have forgiveness of sins. So we may not be, in a sense, like, God's people were brought out from slavery. It's not that maybe we are coming out of slavery in that sense, but we are definitely coming out from our slavery to sin. And he has redeemed us and he has forgiven us that and he's calling us out of that into into being his uh, people. And this idea here, the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. um, Many times I think of grace and I think of it as uh, grace is me getting something that uh, I don't deserve. So God showed me his grace. I don't deserve this uh, salvation. But nevertheless, because of his grace, he has bestowed salvation on us. I- I've never thought about this idea of it being lavished on us. Um, it Paul is really trying to give us an idea of this grace that is being poured out on us, uh, God's people. Um, it is, uh, it is so 
the idea I can, because the use this word lavished on us, it's just like grace upon grace seems to be the idea here. Uh, the only way I could think of it myself was like, if you were to go to a wedding and uh, someone told you uh, the bride had uh, jewelry on, maybe you think that, at least I would have thought, okay, she had jewelry on, so maybe she had a necklace, earrings, and she had some bridal jewelry on. But if someone were to tell me that uh, the bride was lavished with the jewelry, immediately I'm guessing my mind would go to the fact that maybe the bride was decked out in gold, head to toe, uh, covered everywhere, forehead, neck, arms. So it is that idea of this over the top, this grace upon grace this that he lavished on us, this such great grace. So that is that idea there. So with uh, all wisdom and understanding, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. So what is this? So again, here, God is the architect. I mean, God is the one that is in charge. He's the one he, driving all of this. So what is this uh, mystery that he has made known to us? This mystery is that he is reconciling everything back to him through Christ, that he is restoring all creation uh, back to him, all things in heaven, on earth, under Christ. So bring unity to all things, so restoring all things. So, and we get to be a part of this. So this God's plan includes us, but includes all of his creation too. So it is all of us that he is restoring back, that he will make things right, that at the end, all things will be restored. So that is this uh, mystery that uh, Paul further goes goes on to explain. So, and then I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. So again, uh, kind of repeating the theme of being chosen that we saw earlier from uh, 3 to 10. And then he talks about hope here. First, put our hope in Christ. We will come back to that theme when we do 15 to 23. So yeah, hold on to that word hope. And so kind of rehashing of the choosing. And also at the end, um, it talks about the Holy Spirit being the seal, this uh, deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So the us having the Holy Spirit is like we get it, we get a taste of what it'll be like when God restores everything. So that is the inheritance in this case. So uh, the Holy Spirit is a seal um, that we are God's people, a deposit. Also, something that she, a deposit that is giving us a taste of what it would be like, what it's going to be like when God restores all things and that we live with Him. One thing that uh, you can do that is very important in verses three to fourteen is if we go through verses, or even if we start at one and go all the way to fourteen, I want you to count the phrase in Christ. So. Uh, when I counted, I got between uh, nine to ten phrases where it says in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in just these four, uh, these fourteen verses. Uh, it, 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 
not a lot of places have a concentration of that phrase in Christ in the New Testament. So it is a very important concept here for Paul, this concept of in Christ. So it is a, a very geographic expression or a pr- expression of locale, if I can say that. So it, he's saying the term in Christ is used as you would say in Chennai. So, and it's a geographic thing that expresses that uh, we as God's people, we believers live in Christ just as much as you live in Chennai, you live in Christ. So what is this live in Christ? Like, what does it mean? It means we as believers, quite literally, it's not an abstract thing. It's like very concrete concept that we reside in Christ. We have unity in Christ and we live in him, that we reside in him. So how does this affect our life? Like uh, I am in this house right now. When I step outside, I'm no longer in this house. I'll be in somewhere else, but I am always in Christ. No matter where I go, I'm always in Christ. Anywhere I step in, anywhere I step out of, I might be going in and out of places, but I am always in Christ. As a believer, as one of God's people, I am in Christ. So how does that dictate our life? When we go about life, do we act like people who are in Chennai or do we act like people who are in Christ? So what dictates our life? So when we go through life, do we act like people in India or do we act like people in Christ? Take whatever thing you want to and oppose it with in Christ, where act like people that go to office in this particular building or be a person that works in this company or a person in Christ. So I think all of you would agree that in Christ supersedes any other in we could be a part of. So we are in Christ. And as we are in Christ, that that dictates our life. Uh, so that, that was one thing that uh, really caught my attention as I was going through that passage. So next we can move on to the second half of uh, chapter one, which is verses 15 through 22. So for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So we are moving on from this doxology where Paul is praising God and glorifying God to the second part, which is a, thanksgiving and an intercessory prayer or a prayer for the believers. So as he moves on, he is talking about um, that he has heard about the faith in the Lord uh, that the believers have in um, Ephesus have shown and that uh, their love for all God's people. So, and, and then he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering in my prayers. And then starting with verse 17, he'll go on to tell us what he's been praying for for them. Uh, but even in this, it just seems like something factual that Paul is saying, that I've heard of this uh, about you, and therefore I've been praying for you. But even this, we get this, uh, he talks about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. We see that uh, because of faith, in Jesus, the result was love for people. Um, we see that evident in uh, the believers here in Ephesus, but 
th th that is just the normal progression, right? So once you put your faith in Jesus, one of the results of that is a natural pouring out of love for people, for your fellow believers or non-believers, anyone. But there is love flows out as we put our faith in Jesus. So something uh, to keep in mind. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So, he says, you are in my prayers, and he goes on to pray or tell them what he prays for for them. So the first thing he prays for is that uh, God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know God. His first thing, my prayer is that you may know God and that he would give you the Holy Spirit so that you may know me. And uh, he uses this term, uh, the glorious father. So this idea of glory normally comes is this idea that God is making himself visible. It is the idea that God is revealing himself. So essentially what is written here is that, that um, the father is revealing himself. So the glorious father, in other words, is the father who reveals himself. So he's praying to God, the Father who reveals himself, that he would give the Spirit to believers so that they may know him. So even this act of revealing, this act of revealing himself is still driven by God, just like the choosing was driven by God and making part of and grace and making part of his making us a part of his family is driven by God. Even the revealing here is driven by God. He is driving this. He is orchestrating this. He's the author of this. And then so so what do we know? So he says, so that you have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you know me better. So what is this know him better? What is this knowledge that uh, Paul wants for them? So he goes on to explain that. So it's like this. He he says three different things. Okay, The first thing is that um, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Hope. It is something that we have in abundance in Christianity that this world does not. Hope that we can rest assured that no matter what our circumstances is, uh, what our, no matter what our circumstance is, that at the end, all things will be set correct, that God will restore all things. He will wipe away every tear. He will take away every pain, that he will restore all things and make them right. So he is telling them to hold on He's telling him that you have hope. Uh, hope might have been in short supply in Ephesus because there's this idea that the church was discouraged because uh, Paul had Paul was with them from around AD 53 to 55. He was with them for a couple of years. But this uh, letter was written in around 62, so seven years after Paul had left. So in his absence, uh, there had been some kind of deterioration there. So either there was this 
weariness of the gospels of people were getting discouraged, maybe turning back to their old ways. One thing that was likely was they may be discouraged that Christ hadn't returned yet, because I think uh, they probably had a sense that Christ uh, was coming back was very imminent. Maybe they were discouraged that he has not yet returned because he has not yet returned even now. So maybe there was discouragement from that. Um, there are, uh, and as you know, as these small uh, dis as discouragement sets in for whatever reason, um, the that coupled with any kind of persecution they're going through, any kind of uh, uh, ostracizing that they've experienced because they no longer practice this uh, imperial cult, they're doing something else. Uh, they kind of been marginalized in society. So all these things uh, would have caused temptation to go back uh, to where they came from. So, so he's telling these people who might be discouraged, who might be looking back at where they came from, telling them to hold on to hope because we are a hopeful people because we are God's people. We are part of his family. And no matter what our circumstances are here, he cares about them. But whatever our circumstance, we can always look forward and hope. We are always bent as Christians towards the future because we are always looking forward in hope that because we know that he is going to restore everything uh, at the end. He is restoring things now, but at the end, all things will be restored. So that is something to keep in mind for us. Uh, the second idea he talks about is the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. I have read Ephesians before, but I have never thought of this in the way that I read. It, the idea has never crossed my mind. I'm so glad that I was able to study this because um, this got me excited. It humbled me. So what Paul is conveying here is that uh, we are God's inheritance, that we, his people, we humans are God's inheritance. God has chosen us, me, this human being, to be his inheritance. I mean, he finds us so valuable that the God who is the creator, the source of all things, has chosen us to be his inheritance. How valuable are we that our God would choose us to be his inheritance? How valuable are we that our God would choose us for us to be a part of his people, that he would set us apart for him? How valuable are we that uh, he would send his son uh, to earth? to die and to be raised from the dead. Like, how valued are we by our God? We are so valued by our God. And uh, it was a very humbling thought as I was reading through those words, as I came to that recognition of that's what Paul was saying, that God values me so much that I am his inheritance. And the third part is uh, that... Uh, his, his incomparably great power for us who believe, the same power that he exerted to raise Christ from the dead. So we have this great power available to us, this uh, uh, great power that uh, helps us hope, this great power that reminds us that uh, we are valued. Uh, that uh, So this power is available uh, 
to us as Christians for our Christian living. If we move on to verses uh, 20 to the end, he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So here it talks about uh, Jesus being placed in uh, authority. So it uses five different words to convey that. It says above all, rule, authority, power, uh, dominion, every name that is invoked. So there really isn't any specific meaning that can be given to these particular uh, five different words he uses, there might be, but they're used to give us this sense that Christ is above all. Everything is in submission to him. There is nothing above him. There is nothing that of human authority or spiritual power. There is nothing above him. It's almost like they have named everything and he is above everything that has been named. So Christ is above all. God has placed him as authority above all. And he is the head of the church and we are his body. And so there is nothing above Christ. He is the authority. He is above everything. Everything is in submission to him. He says that uh, all things are under his feet. So when you think of the believers in Ephesus, uh, think about the imperial cult now for a second. Okay, So these were these emperors. Uh, many times uh, uh, they're mentioned to have trampled their enemies under their feet. The same kind of language is being used for Christ now. He's, he's put everything under his feet. Uh, the, the emperors, uh, these deities who were men, are ascribed power and authority and dominion. And now Paul comes in and says, whatever you think of that, Christ is above that. So think about this total opposition that Christianity has. I mean, it has with even us but in this context against this imperial cult. So think about where, when they said that they were going to follow Christ and believe in him, what the gravity of what they were actually choosing to do is a pretty... Uh, impressive profound it's it yeah so we've gone through chapter one um before as i'm closing i just want to highlight the three things that i thought were just reiterate some of the things that i thought was important as we've gone through chapter one uh the idea of in christ we are all in him the fact that we are in him dictates everything in our life so no matter where we go we are in Christ. So whether you're at the grocery store, in the office, you are in Christ. So that dictates us. That dictates what we say, what we do. Uh, it, but it is also this comfort that we are never away from him because we are in him. Uh, so, and then to hope, um, hope in the context of maybe being discouraged or maybe being pulled back to something that uh, you came from. Uh, that was uh, the situation of the some of the believers in uh, the church at Ephesus. So um, 
there is hope no matter what our situation is and no matter how discouraged we are there is hope and Christ is drawing us and telling us that there is hope in him uh, this uh, hope uh, is uh, not a, a fickle hope uh, as in i hope what's for breakfast tomorrow but it is a hope that is concrete because we know the truth is that at the end all things will be set right and that is the hope that we have because uh, our god has um he has uh, won the victory through what he did for us and so that victory is been one it is being continually worked out and it will be fully fulfilled at the end so we can always hold on to that hope and that we are his we are his inheritance he values us we are valued uh, many times we may not feel valued uh, depending on what our circumstances or situations are but if possible remind ourselves remind yourself that you are god's inheritance so he values you so much that he has chosen you to be his people he has chosen you for his own inheritance so we we worship a god who values us deeply who has given us hope uh, so we can hold on to hope no matter what our circumstances are and that we are a part of God's family and that we live in Christ. So uh, thank you so much for uh being with us and uh, hearing me share what I've learned about uh, um in the first chapter of Ephesians. Um I would just like to close with a good word uh, sorry, a short word of prayer and then hand it over. So thank you Father we just uh, thank you for this time. Thank you for showing us uh, what you have for us through your word. Thank you that we are always in Christ no matter where we go. And please bring to our minds that uh, we have hope that we are valued by you and that we are always in Christ. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. To hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. If you like what you are hearing, Consider rating us, subscribing, and even sharing it with friends. That would really help us. For more content from We Are Zion and to connect with us, go to wearezion.in. Remember, whoever finds Jesus finds life.